0: Consumer banking giant Wells Fargo has agreed to pay $3.7 billion to settle charges for incorrectly assessing fees and interest and wrongfully foreclosing on homes and seizing the cars of its customers. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, December 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, last year in Germany, a 97 year old woman was put on trial for her role as a secretary at a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. Through her
1: work, she was accused of helping those responsible for the systematic killing of thousands of prisoners.
0: Today, she was convicted of being an accessory to murder. Tourists trapped in and around Lima, Peru, tried to evacuate as protesters block the main roads after the ousting of the former president. These stories and anxiety on the rise among, among Americans coming up. It's
2: 4:01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Residents in Northern California are assessing damage and bracing for more aftershocks after many of them were jolted awake early this morning by a magnitude 6.4 earthquake. The Tumbler near Ferndale, centered just off the coast in the Pacific Ocean, it caused widespread power outages and damage in Humboldt County. At least two people were injured. Congressional negotiators reached a deal on a $1.7 trillion spending bill to fund the government for the coming year. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports now members are racing to approve the bipartisan plan before a government shutdown deadline this Friday.
3: Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said members must move quickly to approve the bill's $858 billion in defense spending and $773 billion in discretionary programs.
4: This package represents an aggressive investment in American families, American workers, and America's national defense. It'll give our troops a raise, make health care more affordable for millions, and it fulfills the promise Democrats made to defend democracy at home and abroad
3: the measure also directs more than 44 billion dollars in aid to ukraine and includes reforms to the electoral count act to safeguard presidential elections claudia Grisales, npr news washington
2: women are now banned from private and public universities in afghanistan the latest decree from the taliban is being met with criticism abroad here's npr's michelle kellerman A United Nations spokesman calls it another broken promise by the Taliban. State Department spokesman Ned Price agrees, calling the ban on women going to university, quote, indefensible.
5: The Taliban have permanently sentenced Afghan women to a darker and more barren future without opportunity. No country can thrive when half of its population is arbitrarily held back.
2: Price says the move will further alienate the Taliban from the international community, and he threatened unspecified consequences. Separately, Price confirmed that the Taliban released two Americans. He didn't provide details, but says there was no prisoner swap or money exchanging hands. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A white former police officer in Texas who shot and killed a young black woman inside her own home in 2019 has been sentenced to nearly 12 years in prison on a manslaughter conviction. That's roughly half the time prosecutors had requested for Aaron Dean. Investigators say the victim, Tatiana Jefferson, was up late playing video games with her 8-year-old nephew when Dean and another officer arrived in response to a neighbor's non-emergency call to report that Jefferson's front door was open. Jefferson was in her bedroom when Dean fired a shot through her window. The ex-officer testified that he thought the home was being burglarized and fired when he saw Jefferson aim a gun at him. You're listening to NPR News.
6: This
0: is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission has awarded another sports betting license.
7: I'm um, I.
0: Aye. 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 And I vote yes, 5-0. With that 5-0 vote, Caesars Entertainment was granted a license to offer sports wagering online in the state. In-person sports betting is expected to begin in Massachusetts next month. Online sports betting is expected to begin in March. This is the fifth gaming license of any kind the commission has granted. Researchers say spending time in nature may help prevent two incurable diseases, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. WBR's Martha Biebinger has more in a study out of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health that was published in the medical journal JAMA.
7: Researchers compared proximity to vegetation, park space, and waterways for nearly 62 million Medicare members. They found that all three environments are associated with lower hospitalization rates for Parkinson's. For Alzheimer's, only access to vegetation, such as trees or crops, seem to matter. Here's lead author Joachim Klopmaker.
8: It's important, I think, Because we can't cure them to identify modifiable risk factors so that people don't get sick. The environment that we live in can impact our health.
7: The study did not find differences based on income or gender, but does show greater benefits for black Medicare members who live near vegetation as compared to other races. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: An association of 25,000 doctors and medical students in Massachusetts is recommending mask wearing when you're with a group of people indoors during the holidays. Massachusetts Medical Society President Dr. Ted Caliano says masking is a major way to limit the spread of viruses.
9: It's one of the tools we have in our armamentarium to limit the spread
10: of COVID, also the spread of RSV and flu. But really, when you look at it, the most important thing is to get vaccinated and to get the bivalent booster.
0: Caliano says masking will help reduce the strain on the healthcare system after the holidays. In the forecast, 39 degrees, now a lovely sunset coming up. Another clear night tonight, down around 23 degrees, so a little colder tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine should return for one more day, temperatures right about 40. And then on Thursday, cloudy skies, highs about 47 degrees, rain starting Thursday night with some wild wind gusts, including on Friday, stormy through the day Friday, lots of rain, highs about 58 degrees.
6: It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com.
11: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Wells Fargo will pay $3.7 billion to settle charges that it illegally mistreated its customers. The nation's top consumer protection regulator says the actions caused some customers to lose their cars or even their homes. It's another very costly penalty for the bank, which has faced scandals in the past. And we're joined now by NPR's Chris Arnold with more Hey Chris. Hey Juana. So, Chris, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau just announced this enforcement action. Can you just start by walking us through what it says that Wells Fargo was doing?
12: Sure. Uh, You know, some of this is in the realm of charging customers improper fees and involved 16 million accounts. So, you know, bank accounts, car loans, other loans. And some of that might have cost somebody hundreds of dollars. Uh, It's been going on for a decade or more, a lot of it. But some of this is really more damaging. And um, the Bureau, for example, found that Wells Fargo illegally repossessed people's cars. They didn't record a payment that you made, say. And so your car gets taken away, towed off the street. And that can obviously cause serious problems in, in people's lives.
11: I mean, those are the kind of problems like without a car, you can't get to work or take your children to school, for example.
12: Right, exactly. And it can be really hard to go quickly buy another car especially if uh, you know you just had your last car repossessed um also the bureau says wells fargo took actions that resulted in people wrongfully losing their homes through foreclosure and what happened here is that people might have been having trouble paying their mortgage wells fargo though was required to modify the terms of the loan so that they could keep their houses and, and afford to keep paying the homeowner qualified for that but the bank failed to do that failed to help them and and so People losing houses, losing cars. I mean, this is pretty bad stuff.
11: And this is not the first time we've heard about a scandal at Wells Fargo and regulators cranking down on the bank. What does the CFPB say about that?
12: Well, I asked the director of the bureau, Rohit Chopra, about that, and and here's what he had to say. In many ways, this is deja vu.
13: They have been caught over and over throughout the years cheating their own customers Wells Fargo serves one in three households in America, so their rinse-repeat cycle of law violations has a
12: huge impact on our country.
11: Chris, that phrase rinse and repeat cycle jumps out at me. So what's the history here?
12: Yeah. you Well, some of this goes back to 2016 when Wells Fargo got caught opening millions of accounts for customers who did not ask for these accounts and didn't even know they existed. And we did a lot of reporting on that. And and what was revealed there was this real pressure cooker culture inside of the bank where low-level workers were told to hit just preposterously high sales targets. And if they didn't, the workers said they'd get berated and threatened with their jobs and sometimes fired. And so... Some of them broke the rules in order to get people those credit cards and bank accounts that they didn't want. Uh, Penalties were issued. The bank said it was going to reform its culture, but these debacles keep happening. This time it's car loans and and mortgages and improper fees.
11: Before I let you go, what does Wells Fargo say about all of this?
12: Well, after that last scandal, the bank had three different CEOs in three years. The current current CEO, Charlie Scharf, said in a statement today, Uh, basically that this settlement is a milestone in the work to transform the company. It's going to return $2 billion to Wells Fargo customers, pay $1.7 billion in a penalty. And Sharf said, quote, we remain committed to doing the right thing for our customers.
11: NPR's Chris Arnold. Chris, thank you.
12: Thanks, Juana.
14: What is on your holiday reading list? How about a dense government document prepared by a congressional committee and drawing on more than 1,000 witness interviews? Well, I'm talking, of course, about the report from the House January 6th Committee. It is out tomorrow. And there actually is precedent for a report like this to become a hit with readers. The 9-11 Commission report, released back in 2004, was the official government account of the September 11th attacks. It ran 567 pages of minute detail. Yet it became a bestseller. It was nominated for a National Book Award. So how do you make a story like this sing? Well, I'm joined now by someone who knows, Professor Philip Zellico. He was executive director of the 9-11 Commission, and he led the staff that wrote that report. Phil Zellico, welcome to All Things Considered.
9: Glad to be with you.
14: All right, I want to go back to this moment nearly 20 years ago now, when y'all have done all the interviews, you've held the hearings, you've gathered the facts— and it falls to you and your team to sit down and actually write the report. Where, where do you start?
9: Well, what you first have to start with is imagining the scope of the uh, story that you're trying to reconstruct. So in the case of 9-11, for example, it wasn't just the events of the day. It was the developments in the years leading up to 9-11. And in our case, we also made the choice to not just examine what America did, but also to examine what the enemy did what the enemy planned as best we could reconstruct that.
14: You're making me think almost of, of the way a movie director would conceive of this with a lens and you're trying to figure out how tight a shot do I need? How far back do I need? How many cameras do I need to tell this story?
9: Well, a little bit, but I, I think of it more as a way a historian, a good historian would would see the story in which you're reconstructing choices that are being made by people who don't have 2020 hindsight who don't know what's going to happen and who are working in a world of uncertainty and murky information. Now, take that idea back to the January 6th story. The January 6th story also, in a way, involves an attack and then the efforts to respond to that attack and thwart it. There's a version of this in which you're just writing about the events of the day, about January 6th. My view, um, which actually I discussed with Congresswoman Cheney and with the outstanding attorney who became the chief counsel of the January 6th effort, was that actually that's not the way to structure the narrative for this story, and it's not what they have done. They made this crucial decision, which I think was the right decision, to expand the scope of the story, to to deal with the whole attack on the democratic system and the effort to overthrow the election. And then in each angle, you look at the people who are trying to help that happen, but also the people who are blocking that and keeping that election from being overthrown.
14: I want to stick with a word you just used, the word narrative. Why was it important to organize it as a narrative, like as a story that people could follow along as they tried to make sense of the unspeakable.
9: Um, Stories are the way people understand the past. The challenge then is to recover the choices and uncertainty in that story. And then as the reader follows you into that world of uncertainty, then that creates the tension. You live through that uncertainty. You live through the sense of, I don't know what's going to happen next. So let's
14: apply this to the report that we are expecting to drop tomorrow. And I want to ask about one key difference between their work and your work on the 9-11 report, which is that with 9-11, there was was huge debate over who was to blame. There was debate over what the U.S. should do to respond to these terror attacks. There was not huge debate over the facts of what happened that day. Anybody in front of a television, we watched the towers fall. We watched the smoke Billowing up from the pentagon. Right, economy. all the
9: big questions were why questions.
14: Right, and if, if anything, the events united Americans. The January 6th, totally different story.
9: Yes, it was a fantastically challenging job simply to reconstruct the detail of what happened and what led to these moments. We'll see whether or not they can write something that's plain and factual and accessible. In our case, we tried to write something that was extremely tight and trust readers to come to their own conclusions about what it meant. Some people used our report as evidence to attack the Clinton administration. Some people used our report as evidence to attack the Bush administration. In a way, the report became kind of a Rorschach blot that readers would interpret according to their lights. In this case, we'll see to what extent uh, the report writers try to steer the readers to the conclusions they want them to hear though they're doing some of that through uh, congressmen and women in the hearings themselves.
14: Well, and in this case, the person at the center, former President Trump, um, is running for president again. Did you worry about being perceived as a political body about the politics of this? Because I hear you saying you just stick to the facts and tell the story. But as you you know, people's views on what are the salient facts differ.
9: They do. And people forget now in kind of a haze of nostalgia about the 9-11 Commission's work. But our report, as you'll remember, was produced in an intensely partisan environment amid all sorts of controversies. And fortunately, there were no controversies about whether Al-Qaeda was good or bad. You had a villain. There was agreement. Right. It's a very different situation here. They're actually more in the mode of having of conducting a a large scale criminal investigation. The committee has recommended at least movement towards a criminal investigation uh, for possible federal crimes by uh, former President Trump and a number of others. So these are very grave charges. They have various both criminal and constitutional implications. Their burden is a very difficult burden. They're moving into an environment that's more political and more polarized than ours. And you and and others can judge uh, how well they did their work under extremely difficult circumstances. I, for one, am generally impressed by what I have seen so far.
14: Philip Zellico was the executive director of the 9-11 Commission and is a professor of history at the University of Virginia. Thank
9: you. You're welcome.
11: demand for electric vehicles is rising, so is the demand for the rare materials needed to make them like lithium for EV batteries. Some producers are hoping to extract more lithium without opening new mines. That's our big story on our daily afternoon news podcast today. It's called Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR
0: in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, in the Taliban's latest crackdown on women's freedom, it has banned women from attending universities in Afghanistan. And later, a former sex crime prosecutor talks about the difficulties in proving charges, such as those against movie mogul Harvey Weinstein.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at
0: bostonballet.org. Wall Street was able to bring its four-day losing streak to an end today. The Dow grew by more than a quarter of a percent, 92 points. It closed at 32,850. S&P rose a tenth of a percent to finish the day at 38.22. The Nasdaq was pretty much flat to end the session at 10,547. The unemployment rate is down in all parts of Massachusetts compared to this time last year. That's according to figures released today from the State Department of Labor and Workforce Development. The statewide unemployment rate is 2.5 point nine percent. Areas with the most new jobs created since last year include Lowell, Boston, and Lemonster. Marketplace has details of this day in business coming up at 630. It's 419.
15: I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to
3: WBUR.org.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. With Titus Kafars, Jerome Project. Portraits on race, representation, and mass incarceration. GardnerMuseum.org.
0: Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events of City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. Clear tonight down around 23, sunshine tomorrow up around 40 degrees.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. In theaters December 23rd. This film is rated R. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com.
14: This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
11: And I'm Juana Summers. The sixth grade. Right now in Afghanistan, if you are female, that's the highest level of education that you're likely able to attain that's after the Taliban government suspended women from attending universities. To explain, we have NPR's Dia Hadid on the line. She covers Afghanistan from her base in neighboring Pakistan. Hi, Dia. Hi, Wana. Dia, first of all, can you just start by explaining what happened today?
18: So what happened was there was an image of a government circular that was leaked online today and it announced women were suspended from university. And then the spokesman of the Higher Education Ministry confirmed the news to NPR.
11: Okay, I I understand that, but
18: Dia, weren't girls already banned from attending school? Yes and no. It's been a bit confusing. It's, It's a patchwork. You see, after the Taliban seized power of Afghanistan over a year ago, they prevented most women and girls from attending high school. But because of a quirk in how they made that decision, women and girls were still able to attend college or university. So up to a few weeks ago, the Taliban even allowed women to undertake university entrance exams. So you had this weird situation where girls could attend primary school, they could attend university, but most couldn't attend high school. But now with this suspension, it looks like the highest level of education most Afghan girls will be able to attain is grade six. And that's when primary school ends in Afghanistan.
11: Wow. At this point, have you heard from any Afghan women about the suspension?
18: Yeah, two of them got in touch with me right away. And the first woman you'll hear, her name is Warang, And she was about to wrap up her first year of her civil engineering degree when she heard the news. It was my dream to become an engineer and serve my country with such a decision
19: made by Taliban has shattered by my dreams i was in second semester today was the last exam and we were going to join in the third
18: semester after two or three days i'm so sad i'm so sad and i have no words i also spoke to another female university student her name is zahra she also sent me a, a voice message in very
20: precise english what news could be worse than this i'm a final year photography student now the Taliban took our last hope from us. The female student had their last exam tomorrow, but the Taliban closed the gates of universities to them. I've been shaking with anger. I can't even cry. She can't even cry.
11: Wow. Did any Taliban officials give a reason for this move?
18: So far, no. But it's been clear for a while now that hardliners in the Taliban are calling the shots. And it may well be that the group needs to show their followers that they fought the Americans and other Afghans for two decades for something. And a tangible way of showing that is by pushing women back into their homes. This is an ultra-conservative movement. And the thing is, is that the Taliban don't have much else to show for their takeover. They face international isolation. The country's in an economic mess. Most Afghans are going hungry. And the Taliban are also facing a serious ideological challenge from the Islamic state, ISIS. Uh, So this might be a way of gesturing to their own followers that they're just as conservative.
11: NPR's Dia Hadid. Dia, thank
14: you. Thank you, Wana. The last time we talked with journalist Simeon Tegel from Lima, Peru's president had just been arrested. An emergency government had just been installed, a curfew imposed. That was December 7th, so less than two weeks ago. And in the intervening days, the chaos has continued. So have protests, so have power grabs. Well, Simeon Tegel is back. He's still in Lima. He's here to update us on the latest. Hey there. Hi. Hi. Okay, start with who is running things. The last time we talked to you... The country's vice president had just taken over. She had declared the state of emergency. Where do things stand?
4: So that's correct. Her name is Dina Boluarte. Uh, She was Pedro Castillo's vice president on the same ticket as him. Free Peru, the party is called. She is still president after a week, although there have been calls for her to resign. And she lost a couple of cabinet ministers over the weekend.
14: She had to name a whole new cabinet, right? How is that going?
4: That's correct. She named a new cabinet. Uh, They're largely a technocratic uh, cabinet. There's been a lot of criticism of the cabinet, that it's not the right cabinet for this difficult moment in Peru. She needs a cabinet with political experience, people who are used to uh, communicating, to dialogue, to reacting rapidly, and also to dealing with a Congress that is frankly very hard to deal with.
14: What about... The president who was just ousted, Pedro Castillo, when we spoke to you last, he had just been arrested. He was at a police station. Where is he now? What's his status?
4: So he now is behind bars still. He was initially given seven days of preliminary detention. Then he went before the judge uh, and the judge decided that he should be given 18 months of pretrial detention. The reasoning for that is that there was thought to be a significant uh, risk of flight. Uh, Pedro Castillo was actually arrested heading towards the Mexican embassy where he was going to try and seek asylum. So it seems pretty well-founded the suspicion or the fear that he might try and um, flee Peruvian jurisdiction. You know, he's gone literally three hours between leaving the presidential palace and ending up in police custody. So it really didn't take very long. Um, and he did uh, send out a series of tweets last week. He still regards himself as the official constitutional president of Peru.
14: What does daily life feel like where you are in the capital? I mean, you're describing political chaos. I'm also reading trains have been disrupted. Air travel's been disrupted because protesters have stormed the airports. Is the country working? Is it, is it running?
4: So really this is a tale of two Perus. Lima, which is where 10 million Peruvians, nearly one-third of the population live, has been largely unaffected by uh, the turmoil and the protests. There were some protests in downtown Lima near Congress, but those have fizzled out. Um, There's been a heavy police presence, it has to be said. Uh, But most of the protests, and they are still going on, are in mountain areas, impoverished mountain areas that voted heavily for Pedro Castillo and regard his ouster as unconstitutional and really a a slap in the face for them. Those are the people that Pedro Castillo appealed to when he was campaigning with a very populist campaign and they're the people now who are protesting.
14: The protests, as you mentioned, have been violent. People have died I'm remembering something you told us on December 7th, which is that most Peruvians, whatever their politics, just want to break from the chaos. They are over it. It sounds like there's there's no end in sight.
4: That's right. Arguably, at least since 2016, we've had this kind of perpetual war between various cohorts of Congress and various presidents. So there's partly a structural issue with the electoral system here that sets up an opposition Congress to the president. But also there are these deep inequalities, which are, you know, not going to be resolved quickly. The overwhelming demand in the country is for new elections, to elect a new president, but also to get rid of the current Congress, which is even more disliked than Pedro Castillo. The polls show that between eight and nine out of every ten Peruvians Want new elections. I mean, the pressure on them to to give in and allow new elections is huge.
14: Journalist Simeon Tegel on the line from Lima, Peru. Thank you.
4: Thank you.
0: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. A nice evening ahead. Another starlit night tonight, falling all the way to about 23 overnight. Tomorrow we should squeeze out one more sunny day, topping out at only 40 degrees. Thursday should turn gray and milder, just short of 50 degrees on Thursday. Rain starting just before midnight. Some wild winds, lows about 41. Pretty mild Thursday night. Then Friday, a rainstorm through the day. Windy, about 58 degrees. This is WBUR.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health, Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at mos.org. Americans are
13: spending
11: more time alone and less time with friends. We are social creatures, which means that just like we need water, we need oxygen, we need food to function, we need social interaction. The dramatic drop in how much time you spend with your friends
17: and why it's so important to reverse the trend. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
21: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has visited frontline troops in the contested eastern part of the country where some of the fiercest fighting has happened this winter.
1: President Zelensky has regularly visited frontline troops in areas that had been liberated from Russian occupation, like in Kherson and Bucha. But the surprise visit to Bakhmut, which came on the 300th day of the full scale Russian invasion, is different. The town has experienced heavy fighting and is the focal point of Russian efforts to advance in the Ukrainian east. While the Russian military has been trying to capture the town for months, the Ukrainian military has held on to the city for the time being. Footage of Zelensky's visit showed him awarding troops with medals and posing with soldiers for photos. Tim Mack, NPR News, Odessa.
21: The United States Postal Service says it will acquire at least 66,000 electric vehicles as part of its efforts to modernize its delivery fleet. NPR's Casey Morrell has more.
22: The new electric vehicles represent more than 60% of the fleet USPS is looking to acquire or replace between now and 2028. Funding for the initiative came in the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed earlier this year. That legislation included $3 billion in funding to update and upgrade the Postal Service's electric vehicle infrastructure. The move comes as part of the Biden administration's plans to make all US government vehicles electric. USPS hopes to have some of the new vehicles on the road by late next year, and all 66,000 delivering mail by 2028. Casey Morrell, NPR News, Washington.
21: Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 92 points, ending the day at 32,849. That's up about three-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained one point end at 10,547.
0: And S&P 500 up three. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon now, Lisa Mullins. The Steamship Authority is warning of likely travel disruptions between Cape Cod and the islands because of a wind and rainstorm headed our way at the end of the week. The authority says it's extremely likely ferry service will be canceled for most of the day Friday and part of Saturday. As a result, it's adding extra trips on the Nantucket route tomorrow and Thursday before the storm arrives. State officials are warning that storm Friday is expected to amplify high tides that could cause flooding and affect traffic on Morrissey Boulevard in Boston. The Department of Conservation and Recreation is warning drivers that lane or road closures are possible Thursday through Monday on the Boulevard between Freeport Street and UMass Boston. We'll have more in the forecast on the forecast coming up. An Ashland gynecologist is facing charges in connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. 68-year-old Jacqueline Starer was taken into custody today. Federal prosecutors say she entered the Capitol during a January 6th riot and struck a Metropolitan Police officer. She faces assault and other charges. She made an initial appearance in federal court today and was released until her next hearing in the case. Her attorney did not comment to reporters at the courthouse. In Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins is describing her first year as the state's top federal prosecutor as bumpy. Rollins talked about her
19: tenure during a media roundtable at her office. WBR's Deborah Becker was there. Among the bumps Rollins mentioned is the ethics investigation into her attendance at a Democratic fundraiser over the summer. She said she hopes that won't sidetrack the work of her office. For me, my only regret is that this office that has done tremendous work, um, I don't want them distracted by what is happening with respect to me. Rollins also said she's created a three-person team to investigate human trafficking cases. Her goals for the new year include improving efforts to fight trafficking and gun violence and a new look at the 1990 art heist at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge
15: Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or
0: connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. A nice evening, another starlit night tonight, falling all the way to about 23 overnight. Tomorrow, one more sunny day, topping out about 40. Thursday should turn gray and milder, just short of 50 degrees. Rain should start just before midnight Thursday. Some crazy winds, lows about 41, so pretty mild Thursday night. Then a stormy day on Friday, windy, warm, about 58 degrees. The storm should end by Saturday. It's 435.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed
14: to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
11: And I'm Juana Summers. A court in Germany has convicted a 97-year-old woman of being an accessory to the murder of more than 10,000 people while working as a secretary at a concentration camp during World War II. As NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Berlin, this is one of the last trials of those who served in Germany's Nazi regime.
1: When Imgod Föckner was ordered to show up at a court in northern Germany last year, she replied with a letter saying that as a 96-year-old, she was in poor health and unfit to stand trial. The court rejected her claim and on the first day of her trial, she showed how fit she was by fleeing her retirement home on foot and evading police. Live television reports from the courthouse in September of 2021 reported that the 96-year-old was on the run and police were in pursuit. Police finally found her, and Christoph Heubner of the International Auschwitz Committee
8: was aghast.
23: This is an unglaublich Refusing to show up to court
8: not only shows her incredibly cynical contempt for their survivors and plaintiffs, but also for
24: the rule of law.
1: When Fuchner's trial finally began, judges heard account after account of the more than 10,000 people, mostly Jews, who were tortured, neglected, and murdered at the Stutthof concentration camp in Nazi occupied Poland in the final years of World War II. Ferkner worked as an 18-year-old secretary at the camp. And through her work, she was accused of helping those responsible for the systematic killing of thousands of prisoners. 84-year-old Josef Salamonovich survived the camp and was the only witness to appear personally in the courtroom. He spoke to German broadcaster NDR.
25: My wife wanted me to deliver evidence. So did my attorney. I didn't, though. I didn't want to be in the same room as the accused. But I did it. And I spoke for two hours. It hurt, but it was important.
1: Salomonovich spoke about the exterminations at the camp, the fact that those in charge let prisoners starve or freeze to death, all for the purpose of killing as many prisoners as possible. The trial lasted more than a year, and Imgard Föckner remained silent until the final days, saying in the end that she was sorry about what happened at Stutthof and she regretted she was there at the time. The court sentenced Föckner to a two-year suspended sentence for being an accessory to murder in approximately 10,500 cases. Due to the advanced age of the convicted, this is seen as one of the last cases of its kind from one of Germany's ugliest moments in history. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin.
14: In our legal system, juries are usually asked to draw only on the facts of the case before them. But in certain states, that does not apply to cases involving sex crimes. California is one of those states where prosecutors may attempt to establish a pattern of past behavior. And yesterday, a Los Angeles jury convicted the disgraced movie mogul Harvey Weinstein of rape and sexual assault, his second trial for sex crimes. Jane Manning applauds that California legal code. She is the director of the Women's Equal Justice Project and a former sex crimes prosecutor. Jane Manning, welcome. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. So, the verdict yesterday, Harvey Weinstein convicted on three of the seven charges he faced. What's your broadstrokes reaction?
26: Broadstrokes reaction is that this was a split verdict, and um, it's important to to know that for the three survivors who didn't hear a guilty verdict, Mm -hmm. um, who had hung juries, um, those juries were hung 10 to 2 for conviction, 8 to 4 for conviction. So a substantial majority of the jurors were convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that they did believe these survivors. I think that's important to take note of.
14: So to our central question, as I mentioned, California law did allow prosecutors to bring up past accusations against Weinstein. What
26: impact do you think that may have had? It's hard to say what impact it had in in this one particular case, but in general, I think it's a really important rule. Um, New York has a very different rule, which is that if someone is on trial for sexual assault and has a long history of prior, even convictions for sexual assault, that evidence almost never um, is revealed to the jury. Um, In Harvey Weinstein's case, the judge applied um, a rare um, exception, a narrow exception that is rarely used. And I think he applied it correctly. In but it's New York, not we're available talking. Mm-hmm. That's in talking. That's in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in most New York state cases, that kind of evidence of the defendant's similar crimes is usually not available. Um, in California, it usually is available. And I think that's a better rule because I think this evidence is important.
14: And why? Why are sex crimes different from other crimes, in your view?
26: Well... In sex crime cases, the victims and the prosecution still face a really uphill battle in the sense that victims aren't just working against the prosecution's burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which applies in all cases, but in sex crime cases, victims are also working against biases and stereotypes. Um, You may have Heard these referred to as rape myths. The idea that if someone goes into a guy's hotel room, she must be consenting to sex, even if there are business transactions being regularly conducted by that guy in his hotel room. Um, The idea that a real victim fights back, that a real victim reports to the police right away. All of these things are false, but they're stereotypes that a lot of people believe. And so, Victims of sexual assault have an extra hurdle in being believed when they testify in court. Uh, For that reason, I think it's fair in a sex crime case and important in a sex crime case to allow the jury to hear what Is ultimately very probative evidence that this person who is on trial has a history of doing the same thing to other people.
14: It's fascinating because as you have yourself acknowledged, you just wrote about this in an op-ed for the New York Times, Mm -hmm.
26: prosecutors are supposed
14: to, and I'll quote your words, they're supposed to hold people accountable for their bad acts, not their bad reputation. Yes. How tricky is it to draw the line to avoid prejudicing a jury?
26: Yeah, it's a great question. Um. And California has safeguards um, to make sure that the jury um, understands how to draw the line. So the jury is told, um, you shouldn't even consider this um, prior bad act evidence unless uh, you're convinced that that evidence is true. And, and once you're convinced of that, um, you can take it into account. But ultimately, you still should not convict the defendant unless you are convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of his guilt Of the trial charges. And what the Weinstein jury in California showed, and also the jury in New York showed, is that jurors are very conscientious about following that instruction. Um, Both juries deliberated for many days. They asked for testimony to be read back. And both juries returned verdicts that convicted Harvey Weinstein on some counts and acquitted him on some counts. So they were they were careful and discerning in their verdicts.
14: Right. We, we In the 30 seconds or so we have left, I gather you are hopeful that the outcome in both these trials involving Harvey Weinstein may persuade more states to adopt the California model.
26: I do hope more states will adopt this model. I think it's very relevant evidence. Juries have shown us that they can handle it. And right here in New York, Assemblywoman Amy Pollan has introduced a bill that would do just that. I hope it'll be passed.
14: We've been speaking with Jane Manning. She directs the Women's Equal Justice Project. Jane Manning, thank you. Thank you.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Under scrutiny after a student died in February, Navy SEALs have made changes to their notoriously grueling basic training. But families are concerned that the SEALs haven't gone far enough to ensure student safety. Steve Walsh in San Diego has this report.
24: In February, 24-year-old SEAL candidate Kyle Mullen died of pneumonia just after finishing the Punishing Hell Week, part of Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL, or BUDS. It's basic training for SEALs. His mother, Regina Mullen, says she's gone through her own hell since his death as she tries to get answers.
19: Before he left, I said, if something happens to you, how am I going to live my life? He said, Mom, you're the strongest person I know. You'll be fine. I said, no, I won't.
24: Mullen had been left in the barracks under the supervision of other recruits coughing up blood and sputum. Mullen FaceTimed his mother, who is a nurse. A few hours later, he was pronounced dead at a nearby hospital after paramedics tried to revive him. A recent Navy report says Mullen was not tested for pneumonia even when his symptoms became severe.
19: And when I ask them why wasn't he sent to medical, they don't really give you an answer. They'll say, well, um, he didn't want to go. I'm like, OK, so how could someone not sleep for five days on low oxygen, off mental status, even know how sick they are? That's what the medical team's for. Us. Does he know how bad he is?
24: Group strep A, the type of pneumonia that killed Mullen, is well known in military circles. There have been numerous outbreaks over the years, mostly at basic training. Several Marines from nearby Camp Pendleton were hospitalized during a 2019 outbreak. Paul Graff is a microbiologist with Navy Medicine in San Diego.
27: It's spread by respiratory droplets, people who are living in close proximity. When you talk about military recruits, all living in the same room and breathing on each other.
24: In a small number of people, including those under stress, it can turn into a potentially deadly form of pneumonia. Regular Navy at boot camp inoculates its recruits with antibiotics that prevent the spread. That protection wouldn't have helped Mullen by the time he got to BUDS, Graf says. Anyone who had gotten that in boot camp, it's worn off by then. So it's not a vaccine that lasts
27: either for your lifetime or it lasts for years and years and years.
24: SEALS only started inoculating its recruits during BUDS after Mullen's death. They're making other changes, including more detailed medical screenings before training. SEAL basic training has earned a grueling reputation, in part because of a notoriously high failure rate. Nearly 70% of enlisted SEALs fail, mostly by Hell Week. But Naval Academy officers have an 89% success rate, mainly because they go through years of training and evaluation before they arrive. Former Navy SEAL officer Jeff Butler.
22: I absolutely think they want to make the enlisted pipeline more professionalized and better at preparing those guys yes i think that's been a goal for a long time
24: the secretiveness of the community makes it hard to get answers Nadia vetter's husband robert died at buds in 2004. it took her a decade before his former classmates revealed better collapsed during a forced run after he fell behind
2: i know that he wasn't going to give up and he just kept pushing and pushing and which is crazy but um probably would still affect me as
24: To regain the trust of families who have lost loved ones in training, Vetter says the military should create a more independent process that will take death investigations out of the hands of the Navy. Under the glare of the spotlight, the SEALs are also expected to look at the use of performance-enhancing drugs among students. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh in San Diego.
14: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the demand for a visit with jolly old St. Nick is high, but Santas are in short supply across the country. That story's still ahead. We're funded by
15: you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for
0: those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. Should be clear and calm overnight tonight, falling to the mid 20s. Sunny again tomorrow, highs about 40. And a powerful storm system brings the potential for damaging winds, coastal flooding, along with heavy rain and the risk for some freshwater, small river, stream flooding. The main time of concern will be Thursday night and especially on Friday. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4:49.
16: WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments. Reminding you, it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC.
15: Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter.
16: People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for.
15: Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org
14: slash sponsorship. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
11: And I'm Juana Summers. As part of this week's series on anxiety in America, we wanted to take a look at how the prevalence of anxiety has changed over time. There's no question that the COVID-19 pandemic and its health and economic impacts have caused a rise in symptoms of anxiety disorders. One recent global study estimated 76 million additional cases of anxiety disorders globally caused by the pandemic. And here in the US, Recent data from the Census Bureau's Pulse survey suggests that the number of people experiencing symptoms of anxiety disorders remains higher than pre-pandemic levels. Catherine Etman is a postdoctoral fellow at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Department of Mental Health, and she's here to tell us more about the recent trends. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Wana. thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So I'm thinking back to 2020, all of the unknowns and uncertainties surrounding COVID-19, all of the deaths from the disease, the changing public health guidelines, economic disruptions, I think it's fair to say that it was a really stressful year for just about everyone out there. Is that something you can
28: see when you look at the data on anxiety? Absolutely, so leading up to the pandemic, we did see an increase in trends of anxiety. And in particular, this was true of younger people, people ages 18 to 25, unmarried people, and people without a college degree. And then during the pandemic, what we found was that all groups were reporting elevated symptoms of anxiety. I wonder,
11: when you look at this, were there certain groups that saw a larger raise in anxiety levels during these past three years than others?
28: Yes what we found is that during the pandemic, pre-existing gaps existed, they remained, and some of those gaps got larger. And we are seeing larger gaps across things like income and educational attainment. So for those who have fewer resources, we found that they were reporting disproportionately more anxiety during the COVID-19 pandemic. And that was in part related to the stressors that they experienced. So in our research, in the CLIMB study, which is supported by the Boston University School of Public Health and the Beaumont Foundation, we found that experiencing more stressors due to the COVID-19 pandemic was associated with more anxiety. So that means people who reported having death of loved ones, job loss, or having a family member lose a job, all of these stressors added up together. And unfortunately, people who had fewer assets and fewer resources going into the pandemic were more likely to experience these stressors that then could lead to anxiety.
11: You've talked a bit about how big of a factor socioeconomic status plays here, and it made me wonder, were there any city or state-level policies that you know of that work to help to lower anxiety, particularly in the populations we've been discussing who have fewer resources available to them?
28: Yes, so there were studies that looked at state policies, and one study in particular looked at persons who had income shock, and among those people, for states that had protective policies in place, such as limiting utility freezes or having more generous unemployment policies, those states had less depression and less anxiety than states that had less generous policies. And
11: we should just point out that access to mental health care is really difficult, even under the best of circumstances. But before I let you go, I want to end by asking you, is there anything about right now that gives you hope that access is improving or that it could in the future?
28: Absolutely. I'm a hopeful person. I have seen the national conversation on mental health shift over the last few years. I think there is a greater understanding of the importance of mental health. And with it, there are many people who are working towards supporting those in need.
11: Catherine Etman is a postdoctoral fellow at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Department of Mental Health. Catherine, thank you. Thank you for having me. If you have small children,
14: you might want to turn this next story down. We have some news about Santa Claus and why it may be difficult to find him this year. The demand for a visit with Old St. Nick is high, but there's a shrinking supply of Santas available to listen to people who want to share their Christmas dreams. Elizabeth Gabriel of Member Station WFYI reports.
29: It's a familiar holiday scene at the Indiana State Museum. People lined up to see Santa, a chance to tell him what they would like for Christmas, or to get a picture with old Saint Nick.
28: Can I
26: have a million dollars? I want I a, a brother sister.
29: Ty Stover, with his full real beard and snazzy embroidered holiday vest, says he's heard it all. He's been on the job for roughly 30 years and has been delighted to see some returning visitors.
16: Right before the pandemic, I had the delight of holding the baby of a baby that I held, which is pretty
23: pretty cool.
29: The COVID-19 pandemic shut down Santa-related events early on. The red suit survey, conducted regularly by the National Santa, and yes, there is a National Santa, found nearly 20% of Kris Kringles didn't work in 2020 because of social distancing requirements and health concerns. Now two years later, demand for Santa is way up, says Mick Allen. He's the founder and head elf of HireSanta.com one of the companies that makes sure Santa Claus is on hand at events and parties.
8: We've seen demand up over 30% from last year, and it's up over 120% from pre-pandemic levels. So there's absolutely huge demand uh, this year for Santa Claus and other types of holiday entertainment.
29: And that also includes a call for diverse Santas too. Josiah McCruston is black and he has been a Santa for six years.
30: The season is for everyone, so if I can be as magical as I can for my white kids, my Hispanic kids, and my black kids, just all kids, I can bring magic to them in a way that I think not a lot of people really can.
29: And McCrustin says he'll be busy until just before Christmas Day. According to the Red Suit survey, the salary for Old St. Nick's is at least $100 an hour if they aren't working at a mall where they may earn much less. So while the pay may be good, Mitch Allen says there just aren't enough Kris Kringles around.
8: Industry ride, there are over 2,000 sort of open positions for Santa, Mrs. Claus, helpers, elves, everybody in this uh, seasonal industry.
29: But the increase in demand might not be the only culprit. Indy Santa Ty Stover says age and health issues may also play a part in the shortage.
27: In most cases, you're talking to guys who are 70 plus and they're not as spry as they once were. So I think most all Santas,
23: especially the ones who are serious about it and real, are going to want a Santa until they can't Santa anymore.
29: And Stover, who gets ready for his next guest, says that's exactly the way he wants it to be.
24: Nice to meet you all.
29: Bless me, Santa.
24: Merry Christmas.
28: Merry Christmas. Thank
29: you. Families can still see Santa, but there might be longer lines and a longer wait. There are already efforts underway across the country to recruit and train more Kris Kringles, so there's enough Santas to meet the demand in 2023. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Gabriel in Indianapolis.
20: It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Searchlight Pictures presenting Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth, about human connection and the magic of cinema, now playing in select theaters. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Total Wine and More, where shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. More at totalwine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear and calm this evening and overnight tonight, falling to the mid-20s tonight. Sunshine again tomorrow. Highs about 40 degrees. Then a powerful storm system brings the potential for damaging wind gusts, coastal flooding, along with heavy rain late Thursday and into the day on Friday. A reminder, when you need a break from the hustle of the holidays, we'll be here with news and interesting conversation. Earbuds in, 90.9 WBUR on. Thanks for listening.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars. Because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.
18: I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter, Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUR-Tisbury, and 89one WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Some new members of Congress are talking about how to reduce partisan hostility.
18: Stop
31: immediately jumping to conclusions about people's motivations uh, or immediately calling them dangerous.
0: Coming up, two incoming freshman lawmakers on how they're preparing for their first term in office. It's Tuesday, December 20th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead. Thousands of Afghan evacuees came to the U.S. in 2021, and most of them don't yet have legal status here and won't get it unless Congress acts. If the Afghan Adjustment Act does not pass by
29: no fault of their own,
0: despite that they have followed all the rules, they will suddenly be here illegally. This includes hundreds of Afghan pilots who fought with U.S. forces. And power companies in Alabama and Florida steered money to six political news sites that have undercut the company's critics these stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's
32: 5:01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The ongoing penalties continue for Wells Fargo Bank, which has agreed to a 3.7 billion dollar deal with regulators to settle charges. The bank took advantage of customers on their auto loans, mortgages, and bank accounts. NPR's Chris Arnold explains it's the largest penalty ever imposed by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau.
12: The bureau found that Wells Fargo illegally repossessed people's cars and took actions that resulted in people wrongfully losing their homes through foreclosure. Millions of others got hit with improper fees in their bank accounts. The wrongdoing stretches back more than a decade, says CFPB Director Rohit Chopra.
13: Wells Fargo serves one in three households in America. So their rinse-repeat cycle of law violations has a
12: huge impact on our country two billion dollars will go to pay back customers. Wells Fargo said in a statement that it is, quote, committed to doing the right thing for our customers. Chris
32: Arnold, NPR News. The EU's foreign policy chief says he held a necessary meeting with his Iranian counterpart and called on Iran to immediately halt both military support for Russia and internal repression. NPR's Peter Canyon reports the meeting took place at a regional conference in Jordan.
8: Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Burrell said on Twitter that he and Iran's foreign minister agreed that, quote, we must keep communication open and restore JCPOA on basis of Vienna negotiations, referring to the nuclear deal between Iran and world powers. Iranian Foreign Minister Hussein Amir Abdullahyan called on the West to adopt a constructive approach to restoring the 2015 nuclear agreement he also said iran is ready to engage with ukraine quote to alleviate any misunderstanding regarding tehran's position in the ukraine war iran said it supplied drones to moscow but well before russia invaded ukraine peter kenyon npr news istanbul
32: the air force is grounding its most advanced heavy bomber after an in-flight issue sparked a fire frank morris of member station KCUR reports
33: a mechanical malfunction forced a b2 stealth bomber to make an emergency landing at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri earlier this month. By the time emergency crews reached the plane, it was on fire. No one was injured. The Air Force has no more than 20 operational B-2s. They're hard to see on radar and can deliver 20 tons of munitions, making them a potent first-strike weapon. They've been in operation since the 1990s and cost more than a billion dollars apiece. All of them are grounded indefinitely for safety inspections following the emergency landing. The B-2's replacement, the B-21 Raider, is still in development. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris.
32: The House Ways and Means Committee is voting today on whether to publicly release former President Donald Trump's tax returns. Today's meeting the last opportunity for Democrats to disclose information about Trump's filings as Republicans prepare to take control next year. You're listening to... NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Last year's Boston Marathon women's winner has been stripped of her title because of doping. That's the result of investigation by a sports regulating body that concluded today. Alex Ashlock has more. Kenyan Diana Kipyogi
1: is no longer a Boston Marathon champion. The Boston Athletic Association announced in October that her 2021 win was being investigated by the Sports Athletics Integrity Unit because she tested positive for a banned drug after that race. That investigation is now complete, and as a result of the findings, the BAA says second-place finisher Edna Kiplagat will be recognized as the winner of the 2021 race. Prize money will also be adjusted. First place is worth $150,000. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex
0: Ashlock. The Baker administration said today it will spend $180 million to invest in port infrastructure. The investment's meant to help the budding offshore wind industry. Massachusetts Energy and Environmental Affairs Secretary Beth Card says the benefits of the investment will be felt throughout the state.
11: It's not just about energy, although that's really important. It's about generating jobs and building the economy.
0: An amendment to a federal spending bill Congress is considering would delay changes to lobster fishing regulations for six years. The main congressional delegation added the amendment to stall regulations that would require lobstermen to use gear and traps that are less likely to entangle endangered right whales. The lawmakers say the rules would threaten the lobster industry. Opponents of the amendment say the whales will move closer to extinction if the new regulations are delayed. And a search firm that specializes in transit hiring will help Governor-elect Maury Healy find the next general manager of the MBTA. Healy announced today that she's retaining the D.C. area headhunter Krauthammer & Associates. It previously recruited for transit agencies in New York and San Francisco. The T's current general manager, Steve Poftak, is resigning in two weeks. Boston Bruins and Celtics both have the night off tonight and in the forecast should be... A beautiful night, clear, calm, pretty cold though in the mid 20s. And for tomorrow sunshine again, highs about 40. A powerful storm system moves in on Thursday night. Thursday day should be mostly cloudy, gusty winds though at night, some heavy rain and that should continue on Friday, a really stormy, rainy day on Friday, but high temperatures about 58. In Boston, 37 degrees now
6: at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs
11: at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise
14: Kelly. Thousands of people are waiting in cities along Mexico's northern border, waiting to cross into the U.S. The hope for many who have come in recent weeks was the expected end of Title 42. That is the pandemic-related restriction that has allowed U.S. authorities to quickly expel migrants without giving them a chance to seek asylum. It was supposed to expire tonight at midnight, but the U.S. Supreme Court has extended the restriction. Angela Cocherga with KTEP is in El Paso on the border with Texas. She joins us now. Hey there.
20: Hi, Mary Louise.
14: Let's start with where you are because thousands of migrants have already crossed the border, are already in El Paso. What is the scene
20: there? Well, shelters are at capacity and people are only allowed to stay a day or two until they can make travel arrangements. So that means hundreds of people have ended up on the streets. Like a woman I talked to, Marika Camacho, She was holding her baby outside the bus station well she says if they can't find another shelter they'll have to spend the night on the streets and temperatures are below freezing at night and about to dip dangerously lower as a winter storm arrives now those who are able to get flights are sleeping at the small airport which is also crowded with holiday travelers right now
14: sure what about across the border in juarez mexico what is the situation there what are people saying
20: Well, people are keenly aware of what's happening, and they're following every single announcement. The news that migrants knew within minutes was that the Supreme Court decided to extend Title 42, at least for now, and that means they're in limbo again. A large group of several hundred migrants have gathered on the banks of the Rio Grande, just sort of waiting to see what happens from the Mexican side. And the mayor of El Paso says as many as 20,000 people in Juarez are just waiting to cross the border. Mm.
14: Well, and his city, El Paso, had already declared a state of emergency over the weekend in anticipation of that possible influx. Now that it's looking likely that Title 42 stays in place, at least for now, what else is the
20: city doing Well, El Paso says it's preparing as if Title 42 is going to be lifted and still trying to manage the large influx of people who are here right now. As many as 2,500 people a day were arriving last week. The city's looking for a place, a large warehouse or some other building to add 10,000 temporary beds for migrants. But the idea is to help people get out of the city quickly. So nonprofits are busing some migrants to, to airports in other Texas cities that have more flights. The governor of Texas is still busing, too, but reportedly only to so-called sanctuary cities like Chicago and New York. And those cities are bracing for a surge in arrivals.
14: And let me turn you, Angela, to where these people are arriving from. All these people we're talking about who were who were hoping for an end to Title 42,
20: where, where are they traveling from? Well, many had been coming from Venezuela until the Biden administration made a new policy requiring most Venezuelans to apply for asylum from abroad. Now we're seeing more from Nicaragua and Ecuador. I met Alfredo Vargas in El Paso. He said he fled Ecuador because there were car bombs in the streets and gangs were asking for protection money, and it's really hard to make a living. He and his family were separated as they were processed by U.S. Border Patrol. Now this is happening a lot to a lot of families, and Vargas and his wife were later reunited. He said it was like the end of a movie, Vargas said when they found each other in downtown El Paso, they embraced in the middle of the street. Now, they're waiting for their daughter-in-law and grandchildren to be released so they can all join family in San Antonio. But it's not clear how much longer this situation will go on. We're waiting for the Supreme Court to decide whether to extend Title 42 or lift it. And the Biden administration has not yet announced any long-term plan for asylum either.
14: And do we have any idea in terms of timing how, how long we might be waiting for the Supreme Court to decide what to do?
20: We really don't know. We had, you know, the Biden administration and the ACLU, which filed a lawsuit, had until right about this time to, to put in their their response to the stay. But at this point, we're not really clear. Um, and so it's all in limbo. And cities like El Paso and cities all along the border are really preparing for a large influx of people. Angela
14: Cocherga reporting from El Paso. She's with KTEP. Angela, thank
20: you. Thank you.
11: American forces brought thousands of Afghans to the U.S. after the Taliban takeover in 2021, but the vast majority still don't have legal status here. A bill before Congress would change that. Those pushing for passage of the Afghan Adjustment Act include a growing list of former generals and ambassadors. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports on one very prominent American veteran who's trying to help the Afghan pilots he trained and fought with.
33: Salim Fakhri joined the Afghan Air Force at age 20 to be a pilot.
23: I like to be a pilot, but it was a dream for me.
33: His dream was to stand up and fight, he says, to keep terrorists from taking over Afghanistan again.
23: Because we were like the victim of the terrorists for many years, and that was the big reason for me uh, to stand up and fight.
33: Fakhri rose to the rank of colonel and eventually got trained to fly U.S. Black Hawk helicopters. One of his teachers was an American Navy pilot named Jack and Jack says he admired the Afghan pilot's spirit. He loved to fly, he wanted to serve his country. And Salim was impressed with Jack's cool under stress. Their first flight together ended with an emergency landing miles outside their base in Kandahar.
23: Not safe area, and I was worried about Jack and other advisors who were with me, but the Jack was just relaxed. He was contacting with the other people on the ground, so, okay, we need a helicopter, this helicopter not fly anymore. And I say, okay, how brave he is.
33: That's when the two became friends. Jack kept a secret, though.
8: It was a poorly hidden secret on, on, I think, everyone's behalf when I left the country to go to a highly publicized funeral.
33: Jack is Jack McCain, and he flew home for the funeral of his father, Senator John McCain, in August of 2018. When he came back to Afghanistan five days later, McCain says, the Afghan pilots really proved their friendship.
8: If, If one of them had wanted... To make a high-profile target out of me they could have would have been extremely easy. I believe that they protected me or at least kept the secret. I can't overstate how important
33: that is to me. McCain finished the remaining eight months of his deployment, helping train up dozens of Afghan pilots on Blackhawks. Colonel Saleem went on to command them, the Afghan Eagles as they came to be known, airlifting Afghanistan's most effective ground troops around the country, until August of 2021 when the Taliban took over city after city. Colonel Salim was still flying missions after Kabul fell and U.S. forces retreated to the airport.
23: And the resistance forces cannot fight against the Taliban anymore. And they asked me to come to the Kabul airport.
33: There was concern not only to save the lives of his pilots, but to keep the Black Hawk helicopters and the only Afghans who knew how to fly them out of Taliban hands. And by this time, Colonel Saleem and the Afghan Eagles had some friends working for them back in the U.S. Maggie Feldman-Pilch is with the Atlantic Council in Washington. She teamed up with Jack McCain during the chaos of the Kabul airlift.
11: I was really working on organizing airplanes, travel documents, um, all of that.
33: She worked the phones in Washington. He was based on the West Coast. Two weeks round the clock as the Taliban began hunting
11: their friends down while he was getting people to the
30: airport.
8: And literally all I did was message and call all the Afghan groups to try to, to move them or get them across the line. It,
30: it was a lot of trial and error. It was not
11: pretty. It happened because of luck and sustained effort.
33: 120,000 people escaped in the airlift as the Americans withdrew and Afghanistan fell back into the hands of the Taliban. For Colonel Salim, it was a whiplash decision to flee after spending his adult life fighting.
23: We did it for 20 years, and like in 24 hours, everything's like opposite, and instead of the helping to fight, everybody was getting out. In all, about 300
33: of the Afghan Eagles and their family members escaped. With help from McCain and Feldman Pilch and many others, they've all been resettled in Arizona. At a church outside Phoenix, a charity called Matthew House provides English lessons to recent immigrant families, including one of the Afghan Eagles.
1: My name is Rashid Ahmad Muslim. I was one of the Afghan Air Force Black Hawk
33: pilots. Rashid's mother and sister are taking English classes. His younger brothers have already become nearly fluent. Uh, So I would like them to graduate from the school, go to college, go to university uh, for highest degree. Rashid says he had a degree and the very prestigious job of pilot in Afghanistan. He can't use any of that here. His wife gave birth to their first child last year during the evacuation at a U.S. base in Germany. And Rashid is working at a local coffee company to support them all. The pilots are applying for asylum and some have got it. But Maggie Feldman Pilch says they and tens of thousands of Afghan evacuees are on borrowed time unless Congress takes action.
11: If the Afghan
3: Adjustment
29: Act does not pass, by no fault of their own, despite that they have followed all the rules, they will suddenly be here illegally.
33: Right now, the act is stalled in Congress. If it passes, it could do another thing. Rashid says he and all the other Afghan eagles, they want to fly again. They have such a good skill. They are brave pilots.
1: They are smart pilots. If that's not possible, we will not give up.
33: Even if I couldn't now, in future, I can study it privately. They can't be pilots in the U.S. without a green card. Jack McCain says he shares their frustration.
8: What they had been a part of, how much they had risked on behalf of the U.S., a, of a huge number of these pilots would want to go back to flying, but they can't. And um, that's difficult for them to accept because the U.S. trained them.
33: McCain says he saw these Afghan pilots fly under fire rescuing Afghan and U.S. troops at great risk to their own lives. He believes that without their honorable service, he might have never made it home. McCain thinks they've earned the right to stay and to fly in America. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Phoenix, Arizona.
0: You're listening to
14: All Things Considered.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, severe thunderstorms and tornadoes are pretty common in the Midwest and Great Plains. Now there are fierce windstorms that are becoming a well-known weather phenomenon. That story is still ahead.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving. In Melrose and at Buckaloo'sGeneralStore.com.
0: Wall Street was able to bring its four-day losing streak to an end today. The Dow grew by more than a quarter of a percent, 92 points. It closed at 32,850. S&P rose a tenth of a percent to finish the day at 38.22. The Nasdaq was pretty much flat to end the session at 10,547. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for a breakup of Wells Fargo Bank this after the bank giant agreed to pay $3.7 billion to settle charges that it charged illegal fees and interest on auto loans and mortgages and incorrectly applied overdraft fees on savings and checking accounts. Warren says Wells Fargo has repeatedly broken the law and ripped off customers. The bank remains under supervision of the Federal Reserve. Wells Fargo says it's working to transform its operating practices. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.19. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex,
15: where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at
14: VRTX.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org.
0: Another beautiful December day has led to another clear night tonight, but a cold one down around 23. Tomorrow, sunshine for one more day. Temperatures about 40. Big changes starting Thursday. Cloudy skies during the day. Highs about 47. Rain just before midnight. Some wild winds. Lows around 41. Then Friday, a rainstorm through the day. Windy and weirdly warm about 58 degrees Friday. The storm should end by Saturday. This is WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging.
14: Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
11: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Local news is withering, and where there's a lack of credible journalism, others often fill the void. Take Alabama and Florida. An investigation by NPR and the nonprofit news outlet Floodlight reveals that money flowed from power companies in those states to news sites that have undercut the company's critics. NPR media correspondent David Folk Flick reported this with Floodlight's Mario Ariza and Miranda Green. And David has our story.
5: Alabama's residents are among the poorest in the nation, but they're paying among the nation's highest electric bills. Terry Dunn wanted to know why. Dunn was elected to the state commission regulating power companies in 2010.
10: Well, the profit margin that that, uh, Alabama Power was receiving was, you know, higher than anybody in the country.
5: Alabama Power serves 1.5 million households and businesses there.
10: They didn't take me serious. I flew under the radar. Dunn says a top
5: lobbying executive at Alabama Power told him he'd be able to keep the roughly $100,000 a year elected post pretty much forever as long as he got along and went along.
10: I just said, well, we need to <clears throat> check to check it. It's been over 30 years since y'all have had a rate case. And uh, it, but I didn't take it good. I should note, Alabama
5: Power wouldn't comment for the story and wouldn't make the lobbying executive available to address Dunn's allegation. Dunn called for a rate hearing. That meant Power executives would have to testify under oath about their company's finances and the rates they set. There had not been one in
10: nearly 30 years. And that's when everything went, you know, went bad then. That's when the tax started. Politicians get bad press all the time. They lose elections, too. This
5: this stuff happens. This was different. In the digital age, attacks don't always happen in person, but online. NPR and Floodlight investigated the actions of an influential consulting firm called Matrix and its powerful clients, including Alabama Power. Together, they steered money to six political news sites in Alabama and Florida in ways that shaped coverage of the people who could hold them in check. Matrix's founder and its former CEO don't exactly deny all this, they basically just blame each other. In the case of Terry Dunn, NPR and Floodlight have not been able to independently verify whether Alabama Power directed these media attacks, but the coverage sure was aggressive. Here's a clip of a rally of coal workers that took a hard turn against Dunn. A news site called The Alabama Political Reporter ran it, without comment, on its YouTube channel.
11: Alabama Public Service Commissioner Terry Dunn is pushing for a bill that would allow him to take money from environmental groups.
5: Matrix was established in Montgomery, Alabama, a generation ago. Its founder wrote a Ph.D. thesis on how the media can be used to manipulate public opinion. Matrix seized the opportunity it recognized in the collapse of local news. To say that it's a shell of its former self, I think maybe even be giving the shell too much credit. Tom Fiedler is the former executive editor of the Miami Herald. The reduction in
0: just the size of the press corps covering state government has created a vacuum that
12: uh, I think tends to be filled by people who have agendas beyond uh, serving the public interest. And here's how Fiedler defines them. Special interests, in many cases the moneyed interests. Journalism
5: typically prizes transparency. News organizations aren't supposed to have hidden agendas. Matrix operated largely out of view. A plaque in its office there reads, Invisibility is more powerful than celebrity. For example, a Matrix employee used a shell company to arrange to buy a controlling stake in a political website in Florida called The Capitalist. The money came from a giant utility company in Florida. The CEO of that company, Florida Power & Light, ordered up a story to embarrass the Miami Herald. The ensuing piece ran three days later. Florida Power and Light and the publisher of The Capitalist declined to comment about all that. We have the email exchanges as well as the shell companies and corporation papers. Another beneficiary of Florida Power and Light's money is one of the most popular news sites in the state, Florida Politics. It's run by Peter Shorsch.
31: I know where the bodies are buried in a way that other journalists or other uh, media types don't know.
5: The power company pays Florida politics forty three thousand dollars annually for advertising. Shorsch says that's enough to cover the cost of a reporter's salary. One of his former reporters tells us Shorsh ordered him to write up positive articles about advertisers. Shorsch denies that, but he does say he'll write more about you if you advertise with him.
25: It really doesn't matter if you label
31: somebody pay to play anymore, like, you know. 10 years
22: ago, 15 years ago, it would have been a death sentence.
5: Shorsh also took approximately $100,000 in fees from a website publisher whose boyfriend used to be Matrix's CEO. Shorsh says he didn't know of her links to Matrix. He says you do what you need to do to get by in the news business.
22: Listen, I'm not trying to pretend like I'm an angel or anything like that. But just in this area, I'm just like, man, if I go, there's nothing left in the... That's like the time, in the Miami Herald and you're down
5: to back in Alabama. The two news sites went after Terry Dunn were relentless. Bill Britt is the editor of the Alabama Political Reporter. Here was Britain 2013 on the site's local TV show.
10: One of the headlines that we hear and see recently is the war on coal. Is there a war on coal with the Obama administration?
5: Britt's site and Yellowhammer News are read by Alabama business and political leaders, people who set the state's agenda and local talk radio topics. The two sites lumped together the war on coal, Obama and Dunn. In one typical post, Yellowhammer News said Dunn was allied with, quote, radical environmentalists. Dunn was a Republican carried to office by Tea Party fervor. These were damning portrayals in a deeply red state, Dunn says.
10: Well, it was devastating, you know, because, I mean, you're not expecting that. You know, you get get to thinking, why, why are they attacking me? I'm just telling the truth and trying to do what's right.
5: A complex array of financial transactions involving nonprofits tie Alabama Power and Matrix to the two sites. The owner of Yellowhammer News says she appropriately discloses its sponsors. Alabama political reporter's Bill Britt says Matrix simply placed ads for its clients. Normal. Britt did say advertisers sometimes pay for reporters to do private research for them. That's actually not normal in traditional newsrooms. It would be seen as corrupting the independence of reporters. What the sites published helped transform Terry Dunn reformer into Terry Dunn lame duck.
10: We were basically, like I said, <clears throat> put on the island when, when when this happened. I went to the state house for you know concerning anything else. You know, people avoided me. People that did was friends. Would, if you get on the elevator, they would get off. I mean, it was they didn't want to be seen with Terry Dunn because they feared that they, Ellen Power, would come after them.
5: The other public service commissioners whose votes he needed ignored him. State leaders shut him out. Voters abandoned him. And Dunn was gone in the next election.
10: You know, as we went went on, we seen how dirty everything was. And it was basically just a cesspool of, you know, down there. I mean, really, I I was glad to get out from there after seeing how everything operated in the state.
5: To this day, no rate hearing has been held in Alabama. It's now been 40 years since Alabama power executives had to open their books and testify under oath. David Fulkenflick, NPR News.
11: Tomorrow, the story of a journalist working for a major TV network and carrying out dirty tricks against politicians who stood in the way of Matrix clients. More reporting from NPR's David Fulkenflick and Floodlight coming up tomorrow on Morning Edition.
14: This is NPR
0: News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A clear but cold night tonight, about 24. Tomorrow, sunny. Highs about 40, still dry. Thursday, though, cloudy skies with a lot of rain and wind coming in Thursday night. Friday, 100% chance of rain, dangerously strong winds. This is WBUR.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR.
27: Every step of the way, the January 6th Committee has been a history-making congressional investigation. Most congressional investigations end with a report. They don't end with lawmakers sitting up at a dais telling the Justice Department what crimes a former president committed and how he should be investigated.
13: I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at eight on WBUR.
21: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Lawmakers unveiled a huge funding bill today that would keep the federal government open through next fall. But Congress now has only days to pass the $1.7 trillion budget. It calls for, among other things, $858 billion in defense funding and more than $772 billion for domestic programs for the rest of the fiscal year that ends in September. Other add-ons include a plan to ban the use of TikTok on government devices – Lawmakers have to pass it before Friday when a stopgap measure runs out. The city of Milwaukee has joined more than 50 other units of government across the country in challenging their 2020 population count by the U.S. Census Bureau. Chuck Hornbach of member station WUWM reports. Milwaukee's mayor says more than 16,000 people were missed, most of them people of color.
23: The Census Bureau reported Milwaukee had about 577,000 residents in 2020. City officials contend the accurate number is more than 593,000. Milwaukee is basing most of its challenge on city numbers, showing more than 2,300 housing units were undercounted. Mayor Cavalier-Johnson says Milwaukee has been working to redevelop vacant properties into homes.
22: We've been diligent in doing that
31: for years, and so that was troubling to me. And that's part of the reason why we're here today, because of the error that we believe the Census Bureau made.
23: Johnson says the undercount is costing Milwaukee millions of dollars in federal aid. The Census Bureau says it doesn't comment on ongoing litigation. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Kornbach.
21: Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow gained 92 points to close at 32,849. That's up about three-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained one point.
0: You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A wind and rainstorm forecast for Friday and part of Saturday may disrupt travel throughout the region, including ferry service between Cape Cod and the islands. Steamship Authority spokesman Sean Driscoll says it's likely no ferries will run Friday.
32: Friday is looking bad pretty much across the board. Saturday also is looking bad, especially
25: in the morning into the afternoon. The timing of the winds dying down on Saturday is still a little bit iffy. And even when the winds die down, it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be able to resume service immediately.
0: Driscoll says the authority is adding two extra round trips tomorrow and one on Thursday on the Nantucket route to help travelers who want to get to their destination before the storm. Spending time in nature may help prevent two and enc- curable diseases, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, WBR's Martha Biebinger has more in a study out of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health published in the medical journal JAMA.
7: Researchers compared proximity to vegetation, park space, and waterways for nearly 62 million Medicare members. They found that all three environments are associated with lower hospitalization rates for Parkinson's. For Alzheimer's, only access to vegetation, such as trees or crops, seemed to matter. Here's lead author Joachim Klopmaker.
8: It's important, I think, because we can't cure them, to identify modifiable risk factors so that people don't get sick. The environment that we live in can impact our health.
7: The study did not find differences based on income or gender, but does show greater benefits for Black Medicare members who live near vegetation as compared to other races. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: The state's highest court has overturned the Kingston couple's $5 million verdict against a golf club. The lower court had awarded the money to the couple for emotional distress. They argued their house next to the course was bombarded by errant golf balls from the Indian Pond Golf Club. Today, the state Supreme Judicial Court ordered a retrial to determine if the number of balls hitting the house is unreasonable by legal standards. It's 535. We're
15: funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member
0: NYSC SIPC should be dry, clear, and calm overnight tonight, falling to the mid-20s. Sunny again tomorrow, highs about 40. Enjoy it because there's a powerful storm system bringing the potential for damaging wind gusts, coastal flooding, along with heavy rain and the risk of freshwater small river stream flooding. The main time of concern will be Thursday night and especially during the day on Friday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 34 degrees now in the Boston area.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva, in theaters December 23rd. This film is rated R. And from IQ, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A. IKU.com.
11: This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's a
14: time of transition on Capitol Hill. The 117th Congress is coming to an end. In the House of Representatives, Democrats are ceding the bigger, plusher majority offices to Republicans. Departing lawmakers are packing up their belongings, getting ready to head home. And the newbies, the first-time lawmakers, are setting up their offices, learning their way around the House office buildings and the Capitol.
11: We are going to spend the next several months here from two of them. The first Gen Z member of Congress, a Democrat from Florida.
25: My name is Maxwell Alejandro Frost. I confronted Governor DeSantis on ending gun violence. And what did he say? He deserves to be represented. Voy a luchar cada familia.
11: And in New York, Republican Mike Lawler.
31: In the state assembly, I cut taxes and oppose Sean Maloney's They've given us record inflation I'm and surging right crime. Priority to bring back cash bail, support the cops, and make our community safe again.
11: We're going to be speaking with Republican Mike Lawler and Democrat Maxwell Frost throughout their first year in Congress. We began our conversation this morning by talking about what they thought about House freshman orientation.
25: The thing that surprised me the most, and this is as a, you know, I've never held office before, uh, first-time candidate, is I don't know you go to something like orientation and it, and it was great and i had a great time and i learned a lot and made some great relationships and it was amazing but once you go it, it's not a surprise how you know partisan our country in congress is because partisanship is really built into the operation um, of the orientation in congress in and of itself i mean the only times i got to spend time with my republican incoming freshman colleagues was In the morning, where we were really in classes and we're trying to pay attention, not really much time for fellowship. And then the evening, um, everything was split between the Democratic and Republican caucuses. So we really had to go out of our way uh, to kind of meet the incoming Republican members and have a conversation. And we got to do that a couple of times, mainly with
31: the incoming Florida members. Uh, But that's just something I noticed. Just to respond to that, I, I think that was a uh, common complaint, if you will, from a lot of members uh, that it was, uh, there really were not that many opportunities to get together uh, in a bipartisan way. I went, for instance, to the Problem Solvers uh, Caucus uh, event one evening, and that gave me an opportunity to see, you know, a few Democrats who had attended. Um, but there really weren't that many opportunities. And I think that, is, you know, to Maxwell's point, frankly, it's a missed opportunity.
11: I want to talk a little bit about the balance of power on Capitol Hill come January, when Republicans will take control of the House with a narrow majority. But I should point out that both of you are members of parties that can struggle to find consensus. Mike, I want to stay with you. How does that affect your party's ability to get things done? And where do you see yourself fitting into that? How do you get things done?
31: You know, I think all of us have different experiences that shape our views. Um, there's so many challenges we're dealing with from affordability to public safety to immigration. My wife is an immigrant. She's an immigrant from Eastern Europe. Uh, and so we've gone through that immigration process. But you you start to build on the area of agreement and you can actually find a lot of compromise. And And so I think the question for both parties is, um, are there people within each conference that are really willing to do that work?
11: Both of you have expressed a desire to working to work within your parties, to stay true to principles, to accomplish goals that are good for the American people. But the fact of the matter is, this is a symptom in which a small group of dissenters really in either party can throw a logjam really into the whole process. So I'm curious how you each view that. What do you do then? How can you accomplish the types of priorities you've each talked about here today?
25: Well, this is Maxwell. A, a, a political party is just like a family, right? Especially our caucuses as we go into Congress here. But I think the important thing is, at the end of the day, we we come together as that family again, right? You know, there yes, there are there are extremes on both sides and outside of Congress, right? As well. Um, that's just kind of the way our country works. But you know, one extreme I, I do view as dangerous, um, and and this kind of MAGA extreme, I, I do, you know, that's kind of. Calling the question our democracy, I just think is it's hard to equate that to what others would consider the other extreme, which is, I guess, you know, ensuring everybody has health care and that vast resources are dedicated to the climate crisis and things like that. I just don't see it being the same, even though a lot of times in these conversations we equate them. And I think it's it's okay to go out and say, hey, look, I have an opinion that is much different than my caucus. I have an opinion that's different than anyone in Congress. I think that's important for the development of our country. Um, but at the end of the day, when it comes down to those votes and we get down to the chamber, I think it's important that we work together so we can actually pass legislation.
11: Mike, I want to give you a chance to respond to that.
31: Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I appreciate Maxwell's sentiments, but I think part of the problem is that everybody is so quick to ascribe adjectives uh, to those that they disagree with politically, or to immediately question their motives, and frankly, I think that's part of the problem. Nobody has, uh, you know, complete control uh, on on you know the best ideas and the best policies. Um, and I think it's nice to say that you know our extremes are. Uh, you know, radical and crazy and your extremes are just sincere and wanting to, uh, you know, push policies that help the world. I mean, that's a little bit uh, of a, a broad uh, statement, if you will. I, I think there are extremes on on all sides. And frankly, some of the policies that get pushed, um, you know, are destructive. So I think if, you know, If we really are sincere about wanting to work together, um, then the first thing to do is stop immediately ascribing adjectives to the opposition. Stop immediately jumping to conclusions about people's motivations uh, or immediately calling them dangerous. Yes, uh, for instance, I think Joe Biden won the election. I think January sixth was wrong. But I also understand when people raise concerns about uh, election integrity, you don't just immediately dismiss that. There are legitimate questions that get raised in the course of an election. And you have to address them from a policy perspective and a forward looking perspective. And I think we're just at such a toxic point in our politics. It's so easy to immediately jump in and say, that person's evil or that party and those people are bad. And I, I just don't see where that helps anybody in, in this conversation or this process.
11: We've been speaking with Republican Congressman-elect Mike Lawler in January. He will represent the 17th District in New York and Democratic Congressman-elect Maxwell Frost, who will represent the 10th District in Florida. Thank you both for speaking with me. I look forward to continuing the conversation and I hope you continue it with each other.
31: Thanks for having us. Yeah,
25: thank you for having us.
14: It's all things considered you're listening from to all NPR things news considered from NPR news A huge storm system has recently punished the central and southern parts of the country. It's the type of severe weather that can be common in the Midwest and the Plains. A year ago, the fierce winds of a derecho were part of the storms that killed at least five people and devastated neighborhoods in the region. Now scientists are working to determine what future derechos could look like. Iowa Public Radio's Katie Pikus
30: reports. December 15th 2021 was an unseasonably warm day record highs in the 70s in some parts of Iowa when a derecho blew through the widespread long lived windstorm hit Matt Thompson's seed and fertilizer application business more than 70 miles northwest of Des Moines.
25: There was a building there. You could see the pad still sitting there through gravel. That's where one of the buildings was.
30: Lost Grove Ag Services lost five of its six buildings. Thompson recalls getting to the business early the next morning to survey the damage.
25: And when the sun came up, it was. We didn't know what we were going to do. It was pretty devastating to see. It was unbelievable. I'll never forget that.
30: This derecho was unique. The first recorded in December anywhere in the U.S. Wind gusts exceeded 80 miles per hour. The straight line winds and tornadoes that accompanied left nearly $2 billion in damage stretching from Kansas to Michigan. Iowa, in particular, has been caught in the crosshairs of derechos over the last couple of years. Bill Gallis is a meteorology professor at Iowa State University. He says derechos thrive on warm, humid air in the atmosphere's lower levels, creating thunderstorms, something the Midwest often has.
5: Those thunderstorms are able to tap into very strong winds happening higher up in the atmosphere, even up toward the jet stream, so that they can bring those strong winds down to the ground. That is what happened in the recent December 2021 derecho in the Midwest.
30: There isn't a lot of research on derechos, so scientists say it's hard to know how they'll fare in a warming earth. Gallus says there's more energy in the atmosphere as it warms, and that could pave the way for more powerful and more frequent derechos. But scientists can't say for sure, and some attribute the uncertainty to the fact that there's no official database for derechos like there is for hurricanes or tornadoes, where they can look for historic trends. That's something the National Weather Service is working on. Meteorologist Matthew Elliott says derechos have no formal definition.
8: When you hear the word derecho.
25: It's got to trigger something. It's got to trigger that this is the worst
32: windstorm that I'm going to see.
30: Once they have a label and better data, Elliott says it'll make forecasting derechos easier and will give people more warning to get to safety. The National Weather Service has improved the alert system. That's after a highly destructive derecho hit the Midwest back in August 2020, killing four people. Now when a severe thunderstorm warning is issued with strong winds of at least 80 miles per hour, people get an alert on their phones. But Walker Ashley, a disaster geographer at Northern Illinois University, says more should be done with urban planning and building codes.
31: We build at the bare minimum standards in this country, and that has all sorts of consequences from heating costs to damage within extreme damaging wind events.
30: After all, Ashley says as cities grow and sprawl out, they're putting more people in harm's way of extreme weather, like derechos. For NPR News, I'm Katie Pikus in Ames, Iowa.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up on WBUR, more weather news. A big winter storm is poised to move across most of the U.S. and cause widespread travel disruptions and other troubles. Our own forecast is coming up. Also ahead, Broadway and Hollywood, giving people something to sing about traveling song show tunes. This is WBUR.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org.
0: In the forecast, clear and calm overnight tonight, falling to the mid 20s. Sunny again tomorrow, highs about 40 degrees, and then a powerful storm system will bring the potential of damaging wind gusts, coastal flooding, and heavy rain. It all should start Thursday evening and continue until the day or through the day that is on Friday. And then uh, we should have uh, the storm ending by sometime during the day on Saturday. This is WBUR.
16: WBUR supporters include Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. A woman had a giant hospital bill for surgery she
24: never received simply because she had the same name as the woman who did.
26: After contacting the hospital again and again and again, that's when I started to worry is this affecting my credit score. A case of medical mistaken identity tomorrow on
24: Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
14: This
11: is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Millions of Americans may need to change their holiday travel plans this week as a severe winter storm hitting the Pacific Northwest moves across the country, bringing heavy snowfall, high winds, and plummeting temperatures. From Chicago, NPR's David Shaper reports.
22: Deep snow and limited visibility caused Vancouver's International Airport to temporarily shut down today, stranding scores of passengers. And that could be a sign of things to come here as the frigid weather system moves into and across the U.S., Forecasts call for heavy snow, extremely high winds, and even whiteout conditions across the Rocky Mountains, the Great Plains, and into the Midwest.
30: Well, this could
7: really be significant.
22: Kathleen Bangs is with the flight tracking site, FlightAware.com. You
7: know,
21: we could see Denver affected, Minneapolis, obviously Chicago is looking at potential blizzard conditions and up to 10 inches of snow with high winds.
22: And behind it, Bitterly cold air that will drop temperatures from well below zero in Montana, the Dakotas and the Upper Great Lakes to near freezing down near the Gulf Coast, where Bang says it will meet warmer and moist stormy air in southern states. Across
21: not too far of a geographical distance, you could be taking off in blizzard conditions and then landing in thunderstorm conditions.
22: Airlines canceled only a few hundred flights today, but delays and cancellations are expected to increase significantly in the coming days. So airlines are now allowing passengers to change their flights and travel ahead of the storm. Amtrak is canceling some trains in and out of Chicago later this week. According to AAA, 113 million Americans are traveling for the holidays, and 90% of them are driving, which authorities warn may be especially treacherous later in the week. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago.
14: Well, as you just heard, AAA estimates that a lot of Americans will be traveling, and some traveling more than 50 miles from their homes over the holidays, either for vacation or to be with their families. When we mentioned that to critic Bob Mondello, he started humming show tunes.
19: Travel, they say, improves the mind, an irritating platitude, which frankly aren't It's very far from true.
27: If musicals are a trip, trip musicals are a trip and a half. By trip musicals, I mean shows that take you somewhere rather than just arriving somewhere by boat or plane or car or whatever. Quite a few years ago, when I saw the Barbara Streisand musical Yentl, I called a friend who was a Streisand nut to tell him about it. He only had one question. Does she sing on public transportation? Because she always did. Remember Funny Girl? She sang Don't Rain on My Parade on a train in a taxi on a tugboat.
33: march my band
27: down. In Funny Lady, it was an airplane she sang on,
33: standing in the wings.
27: All prepared to start. In Hello Dolly, she was belting on a train. And my buddy had guessed right. In Yentl, at the very end, there Babs was on an ocean liner with the wake washing over the vocals as she sang about heading for parts unknown.
22: Why settle for
7: just a beat?
27: Streisand was, let's note, in good company in this singing on transportation thing. Judy Garland not only did it all the time, she tended to sing about transportation. In Meet Me in St. Louis,
20: Clang 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 went the trolley.
27: In Easter Parade,
20: When the midnight choo-choo leaves for Alabama.
27: And in The Harvey Girls. May I just digress here for a moment? There's a reason movie directors like to put musical numbers on trains. Trains are propulsive, gushing steam as they pull out of the station, pushing the music forward. You can hear how it gives Garland a boost. In The Music Man, a few years later on Broadway, composer Meredith Wilson took a train full of salesmen and did something very clever in his opening number,
31: River City Next
1: He
27: put shop. the propulsion City, in the sound face. of the lyrics,
31: the Cash for the button hook.
27: The salesmen are talking, business, and all on one note. But in the sibilance of their first few words, you can hear the steam engine starting up. As the train accelerates, Wilson changed from words with S's and sh sounds to harder consonants to mimic the rattle and clatter of a train clicking down the tracks. And when they made the movie, they just added those sounds.
31: You talk, bigger, you can talk all you want, but it's different than it was.
27: I don't mean to suggest that trains are the only vehicle. That show up in musicals. There's that Surrey with the Fringe on top in Oklahoma, the Hot Rod in Greece, the Helicopter in Miss Saigon. In Ben Franklin in Paris, the title character was lifted by hot air to the proscenium arch. The is Another 60s musical plunged its whole cast underground.
8: Subways are for sleeping.
27: And as Flo and oh. Ziegfeld realized way back in 1927, if you're going to sing about that old man river, you got to have a boat. See. showboat which takes place almost entirely on a Mississippi paddlewheeler is that rare Broadway musical that's actually about a mode of transportation but there are others Titanic, HMS Pinafore, Starlight Express, and my personal fave on the 20th century It's set entirely on a 1930s train that raced between Chicago and Manhattan in less time than it takes Amtrak to make that trip today
32: in
23: 16 hours, anything can happen in those 16 hours, on the bride, the Quick quiz,
27: what's the best song in the world when you're a kid in the backseat on a trip? The one you drove your parents crazy with when you were 7? 99 bottles of beer on the wall, right? Perfect traveling song for a reason. It circles back on itself, arriving at the beginning so that it can start over. Kind of like this one. It doesn't change tempo, it doesn't have a chorus, and it never, ever ends. Well, that's what makes a good song for traveling, all about movement, not destinations. And this song, like the one Streisand sang in Dolly, Put On Your Sunday Clothes, like Atchison Topeka, like a lot of these transportation songs and musicals really, acknowledges that. It's all transitions and circling back, which means it gets stuck in your head, makes you tap along on the steering wheel. It has that unyielding rhythm, the full throttle chorus over and over propelling you as you watch the world pass by out the window. Life and love and luck, Sounds like it's ending, right? Oh, re-new, re-new, and mate, re-new, yeah, not so much. In the musical, to make this song stop, the composer pretty much had to beat it to death. I'll play the ending out of kindness so that you can get it out of your head. But trust me, when it's stuck in your head, the ending won't be what you remember. Okay, here it comes. Almost. And now he beats it to death. That is a traveling song.
11: And this is NPR News. Support for
17: NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is WBUR. Clear and cold tonight, down around 24. Tomorrow, sunny, dry. Highs around 40. And for Thursday, heavy on the clouds, about 48. Thursday night, rainy, windy. Friday, drenching rains, dangerously strong winds warming to nearly 60 degrees. Should be sunny and dry on Saturday
6: we're funded by you our listeners and by cambridge trust a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients their team provides private banking wealth management and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition you can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com way to wealth i'm here
1: now host scott tong and this is 90.9 wbur fm boston 92.7 WBUH Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: The head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau says Wells Fargo has repeatedly cheated its customers.
1: Their rinse-repeat
13: cycle of law violations has a huge impact on our country.
0: Today, the bank agreed to a multi-billion dollar settlement. It's Tuesday, December 20th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Wells Fargo and the largest penalty of its kind ever imposed. Also, we'll speak with one of the men behind the 9-11 Commission's report as the January 6th committee prepares to release its report. The Taliban has banned women from attending universities in Afghanistan and its latest clampdown on women's freedoms and rights. And this evening on Marketplace, every city has a block blazing with holiday lights in December. In Baltimore, we'll visit one particular house in one particular neighborhood. The house happens to be up for sale marketplace starts at 6 30 it's now 601.
32: live from npr news in washington i'm jack spear congressional negotiators have reached a deal on a 1.7 trillion dollar spending bill to fund the government for the coming year NPR's Claudio Grisales reports now members are racing to approve the bipartisan plan for a government shutdown deadline Friday. Senate
3: Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said members must move quickly to approve the bill's $858 billion in defense spending and $773 billion in discretionary programs.
4: This package represents an aggressive investment in American families, American workers, and America's national defense. It'll give our troops a raise make health care more affordable for millions, and it fulfills the promise Democrats made to defend democracy at home and abroad.
3: The measure also directs more than $44 billion in aid to Ukraine and includes reforms to the Electoral Count Act to safeguard presidential elections. Claudia NPR News, Washington.
32: Millions of people who enrolled in Medicaid during the COVID-19 pandemic could start to lose their insurance plans by April if Congress does pass the $1.7 trillion funding package. The measure would sunset a requirement of the COVID-19 public health emergency. The Biden administration has been under mounting pressure to end. The federal government prohibited states from kicking people off the program with a public health emergency still in effect. Twenty-five Republican governors objected to that rule in a letter sent to the president Monday. The Biden administration is putting new pollution controls on trucks and buses to reduce emissions that form smog and soot npr's jeff brady reports that while the new federal rule cuts nitrogen dioxide by 80 percent it's still not as strict as california's proposed requirements
22: many environmental groups had hoped the administration would develop tougher standards for big trucks and buses still epa administrator michael regan said the rule will benefit poor and minority communities who disproportionately suffer the effects of pollution from trucks the standard will begin with model year 2027 and is the first comprehensive national
25: nitrogen oxide standard for heavy-duty trucks and engines in more than 20
22: years. This rule is part of the administration's Clean Truck Plan. A greenhouse gas emission standard is expected next year with the goal of eventually requiring trucks to be free of any harmful emissions. Jeff Brady, NPR News.
32: 3M says it intends to stop making what are known as forever chemicals by the end of 2025. The company is saying the decision was influenced by increasing regulation of the chemicals known as PFAS. Chemicals are used to make nonstick cookware, food packaging, and other consumer and industrial products. They've been dubbed PFAS because they take a long time to break down in the environment. Stocks on Wall Street eked out modest gains today. The Dow up 92 points. The Nasdaq rose a point. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBURM, Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. An Ashland doctor is facing charges in connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. 68-year-old Jacqueline Sterer was taken into custody today. Federal prosecutors say she entered the Capitol during the January 6th riot and struck a Metropolitan Police officer. She faces assault and other charges. She made an initial appearance in federal court today and was released until her next hearing in the case. Her attorney did not comment to reporters at the court. The women's winner of last year's Boston Marathon has been stripped of her title. Diana Kibyogi of Kenya has also been banned from the sport for six years. Today, the track and field's athletic integrity unit found that the 28-year-old used a banned substance before the 2021 Boston Marathon and produced falsified documentation to try to explain the use of the substance. She has not yet said if she plans to appeal today's ruling. As a result, the second-place winner, Kenya's Edna Edna Kipligat, has now been declared the women's winner of the 21 Boston Marathon. Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins is describing her first year as the state's top federal prosecutor as bumpy. Rollins spoke about her tenure
19: during a media roundtable at her office. WBR's Deborah Becker was there. Among the bumps Rollins mentioned is the ethics investigation into her attendance at a Democratic fundraiser over the summer. She said she hopes that won't sidetrack the work of her office. For me, my only regret is that this office that has done tremendous work, um, I don't want them distracted by what is happening with respect to me. Rollins also said she's created a three-person team to investigate human trafficking cases. Her goals for the new year include improving efforts to fight trafficking and gun violence and a new look at the 1990 art heist at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
0: 25,000 doctors and medical students in the Massachusetts Medical Society are recommending mask wearing when you're indoors with a group of people during the holidays. The society's president, Dr. Ted Kalianos, says masking is a major way to limit the spread of the virus.
9: It's one of the tools we have in our armamentarium to limit the spread of COVID, also the spread of RSV and flu. But really, when you look at it, the most important thing is to get vaccinated and to
22: get the bivalent booster.
0: Callaghano says masking will also help reduce the strain on the healthcare care system after the holidays. Should have another clear night tonight. Cold down around 23. Tomorrow, sunshine for one more day. Temperatures around 40. And then Thursday, cloudy skies. Highs near 47. Rain should start before midnight Thursday night. Some crazy winds. Lows around 41 degrees. Pretty mild overnight. Friday, a rainstorm throughout the day. Windy and warm. 58 degrees on Friday. The storm should end by Saturday. 36 degrees now in Boston at 6.07.
16: WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org.
22: This
11: is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Wells Fargo will pay $3.7 billion to settle charges that it illegally mistreated its customers. The nation's top consumer protection regulator says the actions caused some customers to lose their cars or even their homes. It's another very costly penalty for the bank, which has faced scandals in the past. And we're joined now by NPR's Chris Arnold with more. Hey, Chris. Hey, Juana. So, Chris, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau just announced this enforcement action. Can you just start by walking us through what it says that Wells Fargo was doing?
12: Sure. Uh, You know, some of this is in the realm of charging customers improper fees and involved 16 million accounts. So, you know, bank accounts, car loans, other loans. And some of that might have cost somebody hundreds of dollars. Uh, It's been going on for a decade or more, a lot of it. But some of this is really more damaging. And um, the Bureau, for example, found that Wells Fargo illegally repossessed people's cars. They didn't record a payment that you made, say. And so your car gets taken away, towed off the street. And that can obviously cause serious problems in, in people's lives.
11: I mean, those are the kind of problems like without a car, you can't get to work or take your children to school, for example.
12: Right, exactly. And it can be really hard to go quickly buy another car especially if, you know, you just had your last car repossessed. Um, also, the Bureau says Wells Fargo took actions that resulted in people wrongfully losing their homes through foreclosure. And what happened here is that people might have been having trouble paying their mortgage. Wells Fargo, though was required to modify the terms of the loan so that they could keep their houses and, and afford to keep paying. The homeowner qualified for that, but the bank failed to do that, failed to help them. And, and so People losing houses, losing cars. I mean, this is pretty bad stuff.
11: This isn't the first time we've heard about a scandal at Wells Fargo and regulators cracking down. What does the CFPB say about that?
12: Well, I asked the director of the bureau, Rohit Chopra, about that, and and here's what he had to say. In many ways, this is deja vu.
13: They have been caught over and over throughout the years cheating their own customers Wells Fargo serves one in three households in America. So their rinse-repeat cycle of law violations has a huge impact
12: on our country.
11: Chris, that phrase rinse and repeat cycle jumps out at me. So what's the history here?
12: Yeah, I, you well, some of this goes back to 2016 when Wells Fargo got caught opening millions of accounts for customers who did not ask for these accounts and didn't even know they existed. And we did a lot of reporting on that. And and what was revealed there was this real pressure cooker culture inside of the bank where low-level workers were told to hit just preposterously high sales targets. And if they didn't, the workers said they'd get berated and threatened with their jobs and sometimes fired. And so Some of them broke the rules in order to get people those credit cards and bank accounts that they didn't want. Uh, Penalties were issued. The bank said it was going to reform its culture. But these debacles keep happening. This time it's car loans and and mortgages and improper fees.
11: Before I let you go, what does Wells Fargo say about all of this?
12: Well, after that last scandal, the bank had three different CEOs in three years. The current current CEO, Charlie Scharf, said in a statement today, uh, basically that this settlement is a milestone in the work to transform the company. It's going to return $2 billion to Wells Fargo customers, pay $1.7 billion in a penalty. And Sharf said, quote, we remain committed to doing the right thing for our customers.
11: NPR's Chris Arnold. Chris, thank you.
12: Thanks, Juan.
14: What? is on your holiday reading list. How about a dense government document prepared by a congressional committee and drawing on more than a 1,000 witness interviews? Well, I'm talking, of course, about the report from the House January 6th Committee. It is out tomorrow. And there actually is precedent for a report like this to become a hit with readers. The 9-11 Commission report, released back in 2004, was the official government account of the September 11th attacks it ran 567 pages of minute detail yet it became a bestseller it was nominated for a national book award so how do you make a story like this sing well i'm joined now by someone who knows professor philip Zellico. he was executive director of the 9 11 commission and he led the staff that wrote that report phil zelico welcome to all things considered
9: glad to be with you
14: all right i want to go back to this moment nearly 20 years ago now when y'all have done all the interviews, you've held the hearings, you've gathered the facts, and it falls to you and your team to sit down and actually write the report. Where Where do you
9: start? Well, what you first have to start with is imagining the scope of the uh, story that you're trying to reconstruct. So in the case of 9-11, for example, it wasn't just the events of the day. It was the developments in the years leading up to 9-11. And in our case, We also made the choice to not just examine what America did, but also to examine what the enemy did, what the enemy planned. As best we could reconstruct that
14: you're making me think almost of, of the way a movie director would conceive of this with a lens and you're trying to figure out how tight a shot do i need how far back do i need how many cameras do i need to tell this story
9: well a little bit but i i think of it more as a way a historian a good historian would would see the story in which you're reconstructing choices that are being made by people who don't have 2020 hindsight who don't know what's going to happen and who are working in a world of uncertainty and murky information. Now, take that idea back to the January 6th story. The January 6th story also in a way involves an attack and then the efforts to respond to that attack and thwart it. There's a version of this in which you're just writing about the events of the day, about January 6th. My view, um, which actually I discussed with Congresswoman Cheney and with the outstanding attorney who became the chief counsel of the January 6th effort was that actually, that's not the way to structure the narrative for this story and it's not what they have done. They made this crucial decision, which I think was the right decision to expand the scope of the story, to to deal with the whole attack on the democratic system and the effort to overthrow the election. And then in each angle, you looked at the people who were trying to help that happen but also the people who are blocking that and keeping that election from being overthrown.
14: I want to stick with a word you just used, the word narrative. Why was it important to organize it as a narrative, like as a story that people could follow along as they tried to make sense of the unspeakable?
9: Um, Stories are the way people understand the past. The challenge then is to recover the choices and uncertainty in that story. And then as the reader follows you into that world of uncertainty, then that creates the tension. You live through that uncertainty. You live through the sense of, I don't know what's going to happen next.
14: So let's apply this to the report that we are expecting to drop tomorrow. And I want to ask about one key difference between their work and your work on the 9-11 report, which is that with 9-11, there was – there was huge debate over who was to blame. There was debate over what the U.S. should do to respond to these terror attacks. There was not huge debate over the facts of what happened that day. Anybody in front of a television, you know, we watched the towers fall. We watched the smoke billowing up from the Penn Right. County. All the
9: big questions were why questions.
14: Right. And if, if anything, the events united Americans. The, January 6th, totally different story.
9: Yes, it was a fantastically challenging job simply to reconstruct the detail of what happened and what led to these moments. We'll see whether or not they can write something that's plain and factual and accessible. In our case, we tried to write something that was extremely tight and trust readers to come to their own conclusions about what it meant. Some people used our report as evidence to attack the Clinton administration. Some people used our report as evidence to attack the Bush administration. In a way, the report became kind of a Rorschach blot that readers would interpret according to their lights. In this case, we'll see to what extent uh, the report writers try to steer the readers to the conclusions they want them to hear, though they're doing some of that through uh, congressmen and women in the hearings themselves.
14: Well, and in this case, the person at the center, former President Trump, um, is running for president again. Did you worry about being perceived as a political body about the politics of this? Because I hear you saying you just stick to the facts and tell the story. But as you know, know, people's views on what are the salient facts differ.
9: They do. And people forget now in kind of a haze of nostalgia about the 9-11 Commission's work, but our report, as you'll remember, was produced in an intensely partisan environment, amid all sorts of controversies, and fortunately, there were no controversies about whether Al Qaeda was good or bad.
14: You had a villain; there was agreement.
9: Right. Yeah. It's a very different situation here. They're actually more in the mode of having of conducting a cr- a large scale criminal investigation the committee has recommended at least movement towards a criminal investigation uh, for possible federal crimes by uh, former president Trump and a number of others. So these are very grave charges. They have various both criminal and constitutional implications. Their burden is a very difficult burden. They're moving into an environment that's more political and more polarized than ours. And you and and others can judge uh, how well they did their work under extremely difficult circumstances. I, for one, am generally impressed by what I have seen so far.
14: Philip Zellico was the executive director of the 9 11 Commission and is a professor of history at the University of Virginia. Thank you.
9: You're welcome.
11: Demand for electric vehicles is rising, so is the demand for the rare materials needed to make them, like lithium for EV batteries. Some producers are hoping to extract more lithium without opening new mines. That's our big story on our daily afternoon news podcast today. It's called Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered. Tourists trapped in and around Lima, Peru as protesters block the main roads in a heated political protest.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep
0: quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. Wall Street was able to bring its four-day losing streak to an end. The Dow grew by more than a quarter of one percent, 92 points to close at 32,850. S&P rose a tenth of a percent to finish the day at 3822 The Nasdaq was pretty much flat. It ended the session at 10,547. Details coming up on Marketplace at 630. The unemployment rate in Massachusetts is down compared to this time last year. According to the State Department of Labor and Workforce Development, the rate is 2.9 percent. Regions with the most new jobs created since last year include Lowell, Boston, and Leominster.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and simuling software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it
12: to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to
0: WBUR.org. Tonight at 7 o'clock on 90.9 WBUR, Americans are said to be spending more time alone and much less time with friends. What's behind the decade-long drop in friend time, and why does it matter? That's coming up on point tonight at 7 o'clock on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight down in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunshine returns, temperatures about 40, and then a powerful storm system moves in, most of it Thursday night into Friday, 100% chance of heavy rain on Friday. Some flooding, stream flooding should take place as well, with temperatures about 58 degrees
6: Friday. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving in Melrose and at buckaloosgeneralstore.com. This is All Things
14: Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
11: And I'm Juana Summers, the sixth grade. Right now in Afghanistan, if you are female, that's the highest level of education that you're likely able to attain. That's after the Taliban government suspended women from attending universities. To explain, we have NPR's Dia Hadid on the line. She covers Afghanistan from her base in neighboring Pakistan. Hi, Dia. Hi, Wana. First of all, can you just start by explaining what happened today?
18: So what happened was there was an image of a government circular that was leaked online today, and it announced women were suspended from university. And then the spokesman of the higher education ministry confirmed the news to NPR. Okay, I I understand that, but Dia, weren't girls already banned from attending school? Yes and no. It's been a bit confusing. It's, It's a patchwork. You see, after the Taliban seized power of Afghanistan over a year ago, they prevented most women and girls from attending high school. But because of a quirk in how they made that decision, women and girls were still able to attend college or university. So up to a few weeks ago... The Taliban even allowed women to undertake university entrance exams. So you had this weird situation where girls could attend primary school, they could attend university, but most couldn't attend high school. But now with the suspension, it looks like the highest level of education most Afghan girls will be able to attain is grade six. And that's when primary school ends in Afghanistan.
11: Wow. At this point, have you heard from any Afghan women about the suspension?
18: Yeah, two of them got in touch with me right away. And the first woman you'll hear, her name is Warang, And she was about to wrap up her first year of her civil engineering degree when she heard the news. It was my dream to become an engineer and serve my country but such
19: a decision made by Taliban has. Shattered by my dreams. I was in second semester. Today was the last exam, and we were going to join in the third
18: semester after two or three days. I'm so sad. I'm so sad, and I have no words. I also spoke to another female university student. Her name is Zahra. She also sent me a voice message in very precise English.
20: What news could be worse than this? I am a final year photography student now the taliban took our last hope from us the female student had their last exam tomorrow but the taliban closed the gates of universities to them i've been shaking with anger i can't even cry she can't even cry
11: wow did any taliban officials give a reason for this
18: move so far no But it's been clear for a while now that hardliners in the Taliban are calling the shots. And it may well be that the group needs to show their followers that they fought the Americans and other Afghans for two decades for something. And a tangible way of showing that is by pushing women back into their homes. This is an ultra-conservative movement. And the thing is, is that the Taliban don't have much else to show for their takeover. They face international isolation. The country's in an economic mess. Most Afghans are going hungry. And the Taliban are also facing a serious ideological challenge from the Islamic State, ISIS. Uh, So this might be a way of gesturing to their own followers that they're just as conservative. NPR's Dia Hadid. Dia, thank you. Thank you, Wana. The
14: last time we talked with journalist Simeon Tegel from Lima, Peru's president had just been arrested. An emergency government had just been installed, a curfew imposed. That was December 7th, so less than two weeks ago. And in the intervening days, the chaos has continued. So have protests, so have power grabs. Well, Simeon Tegel is back. He's still in Lima. He's here to update us on the latest. Hey there hi hi okay start with who is running things the last time we talked to you the country's vice president had just taken over she had declared the state of emergency where do things stand
4: so that's correct her name is dina boluarte Uh, she was pedro castillo's vice president on the same ticket as him free peru the party is called she is still president after a week although there have been calls for her to resign and she lost a couple of cabinet ministers over the weekend.
14: She had to name a whole new cabinet, right? How is that going?
4: That's correct. She named a new cabinet. Uh, They're largely a technocratic uh, cabinet. There's been a lot of criticism of the cabinet, that it's not the right cabinet for this difficult moment in Peru. She needs a cabinet with political experience, people who are used to uh, communicating, to dialogue, to reacting rapidly, and also to dealing with a Congress that is frankly very hard to deal with.
14: What about the president who was just ousted, Pedro Castillo? When we spoke to you last, he had just been arrested. He was at a police station. Where is he now? What's his status?
4: So he now is behind bars still. He was initially given seven days of preliminary detention. Then he went before the judge uh, and the judge decided that he should be given 18 months of pretrial detention the reasoning for that is that there was thought to be a significant uh, risk of flight. Uh, Pedro Castillo was actually arrested heading towards the Mexican embassy where he was going to try and seek asylum. So it seems pretty well founded, the suspicion or the fear that he might try and um, flee Peruvian jurisdiction. But, you know, he's gone literally three hours between leaving the presidential palace. And ending up in police custody so it really didn't take very long Um, and he did uh, send out a series of tweets last week he still regards himself as the official constitutional president of peru
14: what does daily life feel like where you are in the capital i mean you're describing political chaos i'm also reading trains have been disrupted air travel's been disrupted because protesters have stormed the airports is the country working is it is it running
4: So really this is a tale of two Perus. Lima, which is where 10 million Peruvians, nearly one-third of the population live, has been largely unaffected by uh, the turmoil and the protests. There were some protests in downtown Lima near Congress, but those have fizzled out. Um, There's been a heavy police presence, it has to be said. Uh, But most of the protests, and they are still going on, are in mountain areas, impoverished mountain areas that voted heavily for Pedro Castillo and regard his ouster as unconstitutional and really a a slap in the face for them. Those are the people that Pedro Castillo appealed to when he was campaigning with a very populist campaign. And they're the people now who are protesting.
14: The protests, as you mentioned, have been violent. People have died. I'm remembering something you told us on December 7th, which is that most Peruvians, whatever their politics, just want to break from the chaos. They are over it. It sounds like there's, there's no end in sight.
4: That's right. Arguably, at least since 2016, we've had this kind of perpetual war between various cohorts of Congress and various presidents. So there's partly a structural issue with the electoral system here that sets up an opposition Congress to the president. But also there are these deep inequalities, which are you know, not going to be resolved quickly. The overwhelming demand in the country is for new elections, to elect a new president, but also to get rid of the current Congress which is even more disliked than Pedro Castillo. The polls show that between eight and nine out of every 10 Peruvians want new elections. I mean, the pressure on them to, to give in and allow new elections is huge.
14: Journalist Simeon Tegel on the line from Lima, Peru. Thank you.
4: Thank you.
11: This is NPR News.
0: This is WBUR. Another starlit night, tonight, night falling to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, we should squeeze out one more sunny day, topping out at about 40. Thursday, turning gray and milder, pushing 50 degrees. Rain starts late Thursday night. Some crazy winds overnight, lows about 41. And then a rainstorm through the day on Friday, really warm, about 58 degrees. 37 degrees now in Boston at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource.
15: Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com.